You guys, by a show of hands, how many of you had someone irritate you this week? Okay, you didn't even hesitate, okay? Still a little bitter there? <laughs> Good. Some of you guys look right at your spouse and go. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, okay, here, here's another question. I mean, because don't people just bug you sometimes? Um, how many of you irritated someone else this week? <laughs> okay, even, even more of you. Good. At least you're honest about it. You know, it's funny because sometimes we can think about all the people that bug us and not realize, man, I do the same thing to all of them and, and more. You know, when you add up in any given week how many people you bug that week, a number is probably pretty high, you know. But aren't there those days when you just want to get away from everyone and you just want to be alone? You ever have those times where you just, you know, I just want to get away from everyone on this earth and just be by myself so no one can bug me and I can't bug them, you know, because it's frustrating. It's frustrating living down here because we all have these faults. Man, there's things about my personality, things that I just don't like, that I try to change. I don't want to annoy people, but I do. In the same way, a lot of you guys bug me, you know, and, and we just do that. We, we do that to one another while we're here on this earth. I, I remember, uh, I, I think I shared with you guys a few months ago when my wife asked me, she goes, Francis, what is your favorite thing about me? You know, we're driving in the car, she says, Francis, what, what do you love the most about me? And I said, babe, the thing I love about you most is of all the people on this earth, you bug me the least. <laughs> that was my answer. I don't think it's what she was looking for. But to me, that was an awesome answer. It was very romantic to me. Okay? <laughs> because it's true. You know, while we're here on this earth, man, everyone has these flaws. Everyone just has the sin about them. And we can just get on each other's nerves. And to me, man, with as much time as I spend with my wife, I love being with her. You know, and there are those times because everyone gets on each other's nerves, but she does at the least. And uh, I know it doesn't sound real beautiful and not what a woman wants to hear, but there's just such a truth to that. You guys, while we're on this earth, it is just hard to get along with one another, isn't it? Aren't there times when it is just tough to get along with each other because of our sin? And you know, as we talk about heaven, I really think the thing I look forward to the most is the absence of that sin. When I get to heaven... I will not have the capacity to annoy you. Isn't that an incredible thought? <laughs> you know, and you won't have the capacity to bug me or each other. And it's like, wow, what is that going to be like? You know, because that sin, that, that, that sin is going to be gone. Our flesh is going to be gone or we've been given these new bodies. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but, but Paul's talking about heaven. He says, man, I just groan for that. I can't wait for that day when I'm given my new body. And the words he uses in 2 Corinthians 5 is this, verse 1. He says, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan. Longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 
Paul talks about life on this earth. He goes, man, when this when this earthly tent, you know, this little tabernacle, this temporary residence I have here on this earth in this body dies, he goes, I know I'm going to something better. I'm going to this heavenly tent, this new heavenly body. And he goes, and while I'm here on this earth, there are times when I just groan. I just long for it. I just cannot wait for my new existence. It's like, it's like I just cannot wait for that moment when I shed this whole existence that we have right now. And he goes, this is what we're created for, this future. You guys ever feel that way? Like, I can't wait to get out of here. You have those days where you just go, oh, man, I want something more. And Paul's saying, you know what, that's what you were created for. This is not all that there is. And it's comforting for me to hear the Apostle Paul speaking of life on earth like that. Just saying, I cannot wait to get out of here. I am just groaning for it, longing for it. And that may be some of you this week. Maybe you've had that same feeling, just going, I just cannot wait for this new existence. Remember a few months ago when I was talking about heaven and I started off talking about how sometimes it's difficult to long for heaven because things are so good on the earth? You know, and we experience that sometimes where things are just going so well and we, we, we make these nice, comfortable lives for ourselves here on this earth, so much so that we're not even longing for the future. We're not longing for heaven. And I remember making those statements and going home that day and almost feeling guilty for it. You know, because I was saying how my life was just so good. And, and I remember praying that, that day and that week, just saying, God, you know, sometimes I feel weird. That I don't long for heaven like I should. And I want to long for heaven. And we talked about that, how we ought to long for it, desire it. And I, and I, I remember saying to God, maybe it's because things are so good. And maybe you need to bring some trials in my life and make it more difficult so that I do long for heaven because I want to long for it. That was a dumb prayer. <laughs> Those are the prayers God loves to answer, right? You know, so I want to go to heaven now. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's that desire. It's like, gosh, what is heaven going to be like? And as I've been studying Revelation 21, it's not just this getting out of this earthly body and this earthly life and, and our whole existence. But as I study Revelation 21, it describes heaven in such a beautiful way where you, you, you get this understanding of this heavenly city that we're going to dwell in. And you just long for it. No matter how good your life is, you read about it here in this passage. And like I said, Revelation 21 is the most descriptive picture we have of our future existence. And the more you look at it, the more deeply you look at it, the more you just go, wow, this is going to be incredible. And so, so my prayer is as we study this, as we read it today, you're going to have that same longing, that same desire to say, God, I can't wait. I cannot wait for that day. John's describing what he sees in Revelation 21 verse 9. He says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay. So this, this angel takes John and says he takes him in the spirit. So he's in some sort of spiritual prophetic trance. And he's taken to this mountain, this huge mountain, to look at these end time events. This is all about the new heaven and the new earth we talked about a couple of weeks ago. How it's not going to be like this. It's not like God in heaven and we on the earth. He says in that future existence, there's a new heaven and new earth. And there's no longer that sea between them. But God is going to be with us. And so now he gets a picture of this holy city. He says the new Jerusalem 
coming down out of the sky from God. And he calls it the bride. Now, what does the Bible usually um, call the bride? The church, yeah, the church. It refers to us being the bride of Christ. And here it's attaching us with this heavenly city. It's all just this gorgeous, decorated city with us in it. And we unite with Jesus Christ like a bride and groom would unite. And we're going to spend eternity together there. And so he sees this picture of it coming down from heaven. And that's what he describes. But I want you to pay attention to the words that he uses. Okay, in verse 9, when he says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride. Okay, those words you just heard. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 17. Okay, Revelation 17, verse 1. Okay, remember the words of Revelation 21, verse 9. And now look at Revelation 17, verse 1. It says this. Four chapters earlier, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. Okay, isn't it interesting? He's using the, almost the identical words here. In chapter 21, he goes, Come, you know, here's one of the angels with the seven bowls of wrath. He comes to John and says, Come, let me show you the bride. Whereas a few chapters later, the same, you know, could have been one of the, the, the same angel or a different angel. But he says, you know, one of the ones that the bulls said to me, come and I will show you the prostitute. And in chapter 17, he's describing, remember, the prostitute or the great harlot was this whole world system and all of the sin and all the adultery. A lot of things that look very glamorous momentarily. But chapter 17 is all about the destruction of that earthly system. And then Revelation 21, when it's talking about the bride, is talking about this bright future with the bride in this heavenly city. And remember, the book of Revelation is a book of contrast. It says you can choose the prostitute or you can choose the bride. Which will it be? You choose the prostitute in chapter 17 and you can have all this massive destruction and that's the way your life is going to end. It may be appealing for a while, but then it ends and it's destroyed. Chapter 21, you can choose the bride. You choose the bride, you've got this new heavenly dwelling forever and ever. And it's basically telling us, look, everyone's got to make a choice. Which are you going to choose? The things of this world, the things of this earth that appeal to your flesh? momentarily, but will end in destruction, or the things of God and the things of the Spirit that will end in this eternal city that we're going we're gonna to be studying today. And you guys, the truth is, is everyone in this room has to make that choice. So many people who call themselves Christians today try to take both. I want a bride and I want a prostitute. I want both of them. I want the things of God and I want heaven, but I also want the sinful desires of my flesh now. And God says, no, you've got to choose one or the other. You can't have the bride and the prostitute. Which is it going to be? Because what are you in love with right now? Is it the things of God or the things of this world? Is it this, this future that we have with Jesus Christ dwelling with him forever? Are you looking for that eternal city? Or are you so focused on the temporary pleasures of this earth? Because he can't serve both. He can't have both. The Bible is all about making a decision. Who do you want more? The bride or the prostitute? 
And so John sees the bride now, okay? After the destruction of the prostitute, we here in chapter 21, he says, let me show you the bride. Let me show you the future for those who keep their faith in Jesus Christ and trust in him and have married him. Verse, verse 11, he describes the physical features of the city. He says, it's shown with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, so John is, is on this mountain somehow in his spirit, and he's seeing the city coming down. And the first thing he says, he goes, the whole city, it shone with the glory of God, and it was brilliant, like a jasper, like a clear crystal, kind of like a diamond. He says, the appearance of the city was like this magnificent diamond, but in the center shone the glory of God, God himself. Now, when the Bible describes God, oftentimes it'll use the description that he, he dwells in this light. The Bible calls it an unapproachable light. When you think of God's appearance, you need to think about light. Even when John saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, remember how he described him? He said, his face was shining like the sun in its full brilliance. His eyes were like fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when caused to glow in a furnace. So it's just this glowing being. And so he sees this city that is crystal clear like a diamond. And in the center, you've got God and all of his brilliance shining through it. That's a pretty magnificent picture. And he, and he describes how it has these great high walls. Okay, The city has these great high walls. And that may not mean a whole lot to us, but in ancient times... What was the significance of a high wall in a city? Security, yeah, defense. That that was the whole idea of of having these high walls so no armies could penetrate into that city. Here he's saying, you know, this is a magnificent city that's eternally secure. The walls are so high. You You don't worry about anything when you're in the midst of it. And he describes how it has these 12 gates. The the word for gates there is actually the gate tower. And he says above those gate towers are these angels at each gate kind of guarding those gates. Um, But then it says this. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Did you catch that? This this heavenly city that we're going to dwell in, each of the gates has a name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Some people think that, you know, Israel was an Old Testament thing that kind of ended right there and then the church came along. No, when you really study scripture, you know, carefully, you realize, you know, God has a plan for Israel all the way up until the end. And uh, we studied earlier in, um, in Revelation how there's going to be that remnant of, of the Jewish believers. 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel that has a huge plan. They're sealed by God in the end times. I think it's in chapter 7. The whole point is, is that while, yes, God has his plan for the church, us today, there is still a unique plan that he has for the nation of Israel, and especially for those who believe in the Messiah. And here in the end times, it's kind of brought to a culmination, showing here, even in that final city, you've got a name of each of the tribes of Israel on those gates. But then when it describes the foundation, he says the foundation in verse 14, there's 12 foundations on each of the foundations is one of the names of the apostles of the Lamb. So isn't that interesting? You've got the gates that have the names of the 12 tribes. You've got the foundation that has the name of the 12 disciples of Jesus, the 12 apostles. 
um, showing that there's a plan for both. And it's interesting that it's the foundation that has the apostles on it because Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles. And so now you've got in heaven, you know, this heavenly city with the foundation with the apostles and the gates with the tribe showing that God has this ultimate design for, for both entities. But uh, he, he goes on and he, he starts to describe the dimensions of the city. Okay, everyone, does everyone kind of have some sort of picture in their head? I mean, you're trying to, to have some sort of picture of what this looks like. But how big do you picture that being? This heavenly city with walls and gates. You know, maybe some of you are thinking more like a castle, because it's hard to think much bigger than that. Maybe some of you are thinking a, a big city, you know, maybe like Simi Valley, you know, and these, these big gates around it. Well, well, let's, let's read on it, and, and it describes how big this city is. Verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. Isn't that amazing? You guys don't know what a stadia is. <laughs> Some of you guys are nodding, pretending you're smart. Okay, I'll explain in a second. Okay, so it's 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. Okay, so just how long is it? Because he says it's just as long as it is wide, as it is high. But this, uh, this, this picture of 12,000 stadia, in our terms, that's about 14 to 1,500 miles. Okay? That's what 12,000 stadia is. It's about, about 1,500 miles. Okay, that's how wide it is, that's how long it is, that's how high it is. 1,500 miles. That's, that's like take our west coast and go out to the Mississippi. Okay, about that distance. Okay, so as you picture this heavenly city, don't think of city like, like we think of city. Think, man, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And you go, well, I don't understand how... How that could look that way. And understand what this existence is. Well, that's the whole idea. Is John's trying to use these earthly terms. And, and here he has this angel that's even showing him and measuring it out. So he sees, okay, that's the size of it. And I think the whole point of, of God measuring out and showing it is, is to show us that it's not just some haphazard city that was thrown together. It's, it's specific requirements, specific you know, elements, the size. Everything is perfect here. And as he describes what it's made of... Um, Again, John is doing his best using earthly terms to describe something that is heavenly that you and I could not describe with earthly terms. And he's doing his best. And, and look, look what he says when he describes what it's made out of. Verse 18. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. 
The great street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Okay, just look at that last, last phrase. The great street was the city of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Do you guys have a problem with that? You know, it's like pure gold, transparent glass. What is he talking about? Pure gold isn't transparent, or or is it? Or what's he? Ta- you know, John is using these earthly terms. You know, it's like it's like gold. But it's gold that's so pure, you see through it. You're like, what? You know, and he's using these terms of these jewels. And he's just trying to describe what he's seeing. I mean, isn't it interesting? He says, even the foundation of that city. You know, just, just even the foundation of that new heaven or new earth, whatever you want to describe it as. He goes, it's all jewels. Whereas now, you know, you, we've got these different layers on the earth. But you've got the dirt. You know, you've got the crust. You have a layer of, I think there's a layer of ants. You know, because everywhere you go, you know, they, they get there. But then you got, you know, you got all these different layers of, of, of just stuff. And in the heavenly city, you know, as he's describing it, you know, he's saying, man, it's just all these jewels. And, and, and people have tried to say, well, this represents this. This is a, There's just really no good picture of it. The whole idea is it's just gorgeous. It's just all these jewels, all of Everything, everything is just perfect. Everything is just beautiful. And then when he even describes the gates, he says each of those 12 gates was one giant pearl. You ever heard the term, those pearly gates of heaven? You know, but when we think of the pearly gates, what do you think of? You think of those little beads in the 70s. Hey, you know, you walk through, you know. But you guys hear, when it talks about the pearls, you know, these gates, it's, it's not like that. The gates, when he talks about the pearls, he says it's like one big pearl. Okay, so get your mind off of these little beady pearls that you're going to be, you know, walking through and realize, man, no, the gates are about just one solid pearl. And the pearl was like the most, most valuable of all the ancient jewels because uh, the pearl was the, the one thing that was not enhanced by man. You know, you dig a diamond out, you know, of a, a mine and you got to chisel it out and make it all nice. But a pearl, you open up the clam and you take it right out of his his lips, and uh, you got this, you got this beautiful pearl that you can't do anything to that. You know, it's just beautiful. There's nothing you do to enhance it or beautify it. And so to them, the pearl was just so precious and so, so gorgeous to them. And the idea is that this, this gate is just this beautiful, gorgeous pearl. Each of those 12 gates, just one magnificent pearl. So you're describing the city and, and, and it's hard. It's hard to picture in your mind something that massive that beautiful, that perfect. And he goes on, verse 22. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So further description of the city, he says, there's no temple there. Okay, but this is the new Jerusalem. When you think of Jerusalem, you think about the temple that stood there. But you've got to remember the Old Testament, the whole idea of the temple was to symbolize the presence of God with them. 
This whole idea of that Holy of Holies and that Ark of the Covenant was somehow to give man on earth this picture of God and, and this, this idea of his presence there in the Holy of Holies. And he was there in a very real way. But here in the New Jerusalem, he says, there's no temple there. Why? He says, because God and the Lamb are the temple. You don't need this, this house or this building. It's just God's right there. You don't have to go to a temple to find God. God is the temple. And his presence is there with us. And it says that there's no sun or the moon. It says you don't need the sun or the moon. Why? Because the glory of God lights up the place. Okay, so forget about this earth that you see right now. There's nothing to compare it to. It doesn't, it's not like the sun's going to rise. It just says that God and all of his brilliance and all of his radiant glory is going to shine. And we in our new bodies will be able to absorb that and, and live by that light. A totally, totally different existence from what you and I see today. And the sun and the moon aren't going to enhance the light of God. Those are, those are created things that he made. And so his light is just so far beyond that. And it says so much so that there's no night there. It says it's not like a city that shuts down at a certain hour. Oh, it's nightfall. You know, time to, you know, go to bed. You, you guys ever look forward to the night? Aren't there days where you go, I just can't wait to go to bed. Can't wait for this day to be over, for the sun to go down, and you're looking at your clock, and maybe I'll just go to bed early and just end this day. I just want to rest. I just want to sleep. You know, that one time I can just get away from everything. Because we're so tired. Well, you guys, the Bible says that in heaven there is no night. You know why? Because heaven's a place of rest. Heaven in all of his existence is a place of rest. It's not like we're going to get so burnt out and wasted. It's like, oh, God, I need a nap. It's like, no, Lord, this is a place of rest. This is a perfect place. Some of that tiredness and all that weariness from our work is part of the curse that we have on the earth, back from Adam and Eve. But here in the new heaven and new earth, there's, there's no night. It's just the perfect rest of God, the perfect light of God all the while. But in, in, in verse 27, it, it gives a... A statement here, and I, I kind of see it as a warning because it says in verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you're not going to be able to scale the walls and sneak in. You've got angels at every gate. And he says, you know what? Nothing impure is going to enter into there. You're not going to break in. There's not going to be any sin in there. There's not going to be any sinner creeping in and screwing things up in this new existence. He says, you know, it's all protected. But when he says that nothing impure will ever enter into it, only the ones whose names are written in the book of life. Somebody may read that and go, wait a second, nothing impure, but there's impurities in me. I mean, I sin. We all still sin. There's still impurities in our lives. But you got to understand something. Okay, positionally before God, that's not true. See, because the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that God made him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Okay, what does that mean? It says that he made Jesus, the one who knew no sin, he made him who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect, right? Perfect in God's eyes. Sinless, perfect. There was no impurity found in him. It says he made him who knew no sin 
become sin. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, that perfectly pure Son of God from all of eternity past became sin. He took all of my sin, all of my impurities upon himself there on the cross. All of your impurities, all of your sin were placed on Jesus Christ. He became sin on our behalf. So here is the perfect Jesus who takes our sin to the cross. And that's why he needs to be crucified. That's why the father turns his back on him. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why? Because he was embodying all my sin at that moment. And the Bible says he he became sin on my behalf. Why? That I, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. So while Jesus was becoming me and my sin, and God had to look at Jesus the way he would look at my sin, now I became the righteousness of Jesus Christ. At that moment when we switch places, God now looks at me the way he would look at Jesus when he's perfectly pure. That's me. I'm totally spotless in God's eyes. Not because of anything I've done, but because Jesus took that for me. It was a complete switch. Understand, yeah, I still sin and everything else, but when God looks at me positionally, I am absolutely pure in his eyes. Because Jesus took it all on the cross. And so when it says that nothing impure will enter the city, I don't have to worry about that. Because there are no impurities when God looks upon me. When I am covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, I am totally pure in his eyes. And for those of us who believe and have accepted what Christ did on the cross for us, you are totally pure. And your name is written in the book of life. And those are the people, he says, will enter into that city. If your name is written in the book of life. It's the most important question on this earth. Is if you were to die today, would you find your name written in that book? You know, he gives all this beautiful description of this new existence, but then he says it's only for those whose names are written, though. You guys, do you really believe? Do you really believe this stuff? I mean, more than just saying that you do, I mean, in your heart, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died on the cross for your sins? Are you willing to stand up for Jesus Christ? I mean, it may be easy right now, but what about when it gets difficult? When there's persecution? Is there anything that would cause you to deny the name of Jesus Christ? Whether it be ridicule from friends now, or family members, or maybe a future persecution? Maybe if it was illegal? Is there anything? Torture? starvation that would cause you to deny the name of Jesus Christ. How much do you believe this? You know, sometimes I, I think of my little kids, you know, and, and especially my five-year-old who says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, Dad. But there's sometimes where I just wonder, I go, gosh, what about when I'm gone? What about if it gets more difficult to believe? Is she really going to hold on to her faith? And, you know, and sometimes I, I look at her at night and just go, you really believe? She goes, Dad, I really believe, you know? And it's like, what do I have to do to get through to you, you know? And, and, and But, you know, you, you just wonder, is she just saying that as a kid, or does she really mean this? Is, is her faith genuine? And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, and what about the people in this, in this church? I mean, this weekend, you know, three to 4,000 people coming here, and I bet you 95% of you would say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. 
But there's part of me that just wonders, okay, but what about when it gets really difficult? Are you still going to believe? Is it more than just something you grew up with? Or something you just kind of casually accept and casually admit to? Or is this something you truly believe in your heart? And that nothing would cause you to deny the name of Jesus Christ? I hope so. I hope it's genuine you. That no temptation or anything else would cause you to walk away from Jesus. But it's a real thing. Because I believe with all my heart that it's just going to get harder for us to keep our faith in this world. And I don't know that all of us are going to last through it, but I pray that we do. But you need to evaluate your own life and say, okay, am I one who truly believes in the blood of Jesus Christ so much so that I would die for it? And this is this is what it's all about. I hope so. He goes on, he continues to describe it. In, in chapter 22, and he says in verse 1, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Okay, I want you to try to picture this. Okay, it says now there's this river of the water of life. Okay, and the Garden of Eden talks about a great river, and I, I think this is somewhat of a picture of that, or uh, or that was a, a foreshadowing of what was to come. But it's this idea of paradise and this perfect, beautiful river flowing through it, totally pure. It says the water of life that comes from the throne of God and the Lamb. Okay, so it's coming from the throne of God, and it says God and the Lamb. And sometimes that's just the way they describe God, is it, it, it describes Him somehow having this unity between the Father and the Son, other times along with the Spirit. And it's hard for us to understand in human terms, because God is beyond us, and there's no analogy to fit Him. And here you go, well, is it, are they separate? Are they together on this throne? How does that work? The, the truthful answer is we don't know. Okay, we have nothing to compare God to on this earth. He's beyond anything on this earth, and his existence is beyond that. And so when we try to belittle the Trinity and try to explain it in our human terms, we're always going to fall short. Just know that there are times when the Bible talks about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and speaks of them like separate persons. Other times it speaks of them as one collective person, and that's the mystery of God. It's like, I don't totally get that. Well, our finite minds can't totally get God. And, says, and even this, this city, it's like this throne of God the Father and the Lamb and this river of life. And what does that represent? We're not totally sure. And it says that, that in, this, in this river lies this tree, this, the tree of life. And it says that it, it's on either side of the river. So it seems like its branches go to either side. You can get the fruit of either side. But where do we hear of the tree of life? Yeah, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, Genesis, chapter 2. Remember the, the tree of life? But what happened when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and they ate it? Then suddenly they lost access to the tree of life. And God says what? You shall surely die. See, the tree of life is this picture of immortality, of eternal life. But when Adam and Eve sinned, that's when the curse came. And that's why God says, no more immortality, no more tree of life. But now you shall surely die. Your days on earth will be limited. That's part of the curse. 
But here in the end times, that tree is back. In our eternal state, showing that our immortality is back. And we are going to live forever here. This this, this tree of life, and it says that it it bears fruit uh, 12 times, you know, basically every single month. Um, Just showing it's ongoing. It's not a tree that dies or whatever. It's just constant fruit bearing. And then it talks about how its leaves are, uh, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Showing that for all people, that, that the leaves are, are a representation of our healing. No more sickness. You know, so, so the leaves are for healing. No more sickness. The tree of life is showing that there's no more death. Just like God says, you know, there will be no more mourning. And it says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. It's just a, a beautiful picture of this, this gorgeous existence where there's no death. There's no sickness. There's no weeping. It's perfection. But as it talks about all these beautiful scenes, because I want you to think about the tree, the river, the fruits. You know, because sometimes uh, when I've read this description in the past, I'm looking at all these stones, and it's hard to picture that. I'm, I'm looking at all these jewels and stuff, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes it, it made me think of Vegas. You know, like all the glitz and stuff, and that's not a real beautiful picture to me. You know, and, and, and unfortunately, you know, when you think of all these precious jewels lining the walls and everything else, it's like this, this picture of this cheesy Vegas look. And, uh, and yet, you guys, that, nothing is farther from the truth. And when you look at this description, it's, it's, it's about stuff that's beyond here. And it's talking about the beauty. And I, I love the way it's describing this river as being so pure and this tree being so perfect. And all the things, that, the way it ought to be, God, the way God created it. Don't think of man-made things when you, you think of heaven. You guys know last weekend I wasn't able to be with you because I had to be in Maui. And uh, I was, uh, but there was this afternoon, I, I, just one of the afternoons while I was there, you know, I, I was out in Lahaina, you know, on, on, on a surfboard and just surfing around the afternoon and, uh, and the sun was setting and, and I, I'll never forget, you know, I'm sitting in, the, in 80 degree water, you know, it's like a bathtub and just looking toward the island and you see this rainbow forming. Rainbows are just incredible to me. It's like, gosh, look at that thing. Just bright, just just beautiful. You know, and then I turn the other direction and over the island of Lanai, you see the sun setting. You know, and, and there's all these clouds there. And so the clouds are turning this bright pink and orange and red. And it's just glowing as the sun's just getting lower and lower over this gorgeous mountain. And you look on the other side, you see this beautiful rainbow over this island. And I'm sitting here in 80 degree water just watching it all, just looking back and forth and just going, this is incredible. This is so gorgeous. You ever, you ever been to a spot that is so beautiful, your whole heart just goes, ah, you know? And, and it's almost like your eyes want to well up with tears because of the beauty of it all. There are just times when you get in certain spots on this earth and you just look at it. Why? Because it's untouched by man. Man can't screw up that rainbow you know, or that sunset or those clouds or those colors. It's just all about God. Something that man could not enhance or disrupt or destroy. And you're sitting and you're watching all of it. You're just getting away as you're sitting in God's ocean just going, this is incredible. This is so beautiful. I, I sat out there until the sun went totally down and it's getting dark now. And stars are starting to come out. And I'm sitting here in this water. Can't even see the waves coming. But it's just so beautiful. Just so incredible. 
And, and, I, and as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about it, and I'm reading about this new heaven and new earth and saying, God, you're going to make something beyond this? You know, it's when we get out in nature and you see what God's created and then you, you appreciate the beauty when, when you go somewhere where, where man is not touching it. Man is not altering it with concrete and drywall. And you're just looking at the beauty of what God created. And then you thank God, a new heaven, a new earth? Beyond this? This makes you, oh God, what's it going to be like? And you're going to dwell there with me? What's it going to feel like? I know how my heart feels when I get away from everything else. You know, I'm the type of guy, and probably a lot of you are the same way, where you can just sit in front of like a rushing stream or river and just stare at it. And there's just an awe, there's a beauty about it all. When you get away from everything that is man-made. You guys, that's what this city is. This is what this new heaven and earth is all about. God making things that we could never make, that is so beyond us. And you guys, let me just say this. I, I would encourage you, when you do go on vacation, don't go to Vegas, you know. Get out in the world. Get out in nature. Go hiking. Go camping. Get out to the beach. We're half an hour away. And just stare at the sunset. Stare at the sunrise. Stare at the things that, that God created. Because when you're out there amidst it all, you can't deny God's existence. The only time you can deny God's existence is when you're surrounded by, by the drywall and looking at a PowerPoint presentation. You can sit there and go, oh yeah, maybe there's no God. You know, when you... When you get out in the world, seriously, when you get out into nature, you can't say that. You can't do that. You have no excuse when you see the beauty of what God has created. It's impossible. You cannot deny his existence. And when you look at that beauty and then think, God has me destined for something even more beautiful than this. In a place that man will not alter, man will not corrupt with his sin. It's incredible. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? And then uh, he goes to verse 3. He says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Yes, it's for eternity. We're going to stop right there. It's, it's for eternity. What does he say right after he says there will no longer be any curse? His curse is gone. The throne of God and Lamb will be in the city. See, part of the curse is God being in heaven and us on the earth. Because what happened in the garden? Remember God used to walk amidst Adam and Eve? But then once the curse happened, there goes God up in heaven. That's part of that death and that separation. God in heaven, us down here on the earth. That's why so many people on the earth say, but where is your God? Well, there's going to come a day when there's no longer that question. God's going to dwell with us. Why? Because the curse is gone and God will be amidst us. You guys, how amazing is that going to be? Perfection with God forever and ever. You guys, that's why the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light and momentary troubles, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. He says, whatever you have to go through on this earth, 
you're going to see one day that this eternal weight of glory is so far beyond any struggle, any pain you went through on this earth, far more than just worth it. He says it far exceeds it. And as you begin to picture eternity in your mind, don't you see how, yeah, who cares about the things on this earth? And you guys, for some of us, keeping this picture in our mind is all that's going to keep us going through some weeks of our lives. And for some of you, there's probably a very timely message for you today, for you just to realize, you know what? Yeah, I've gone through some troubles this week, but, you know, in light of eternity, it's okay. You guys, we've got it pretty good. And don't lose sight of it. That's how we keep our joy. That's how we keep going every day. That's how we can keep this, this joy and this peace, even though life gets difficult. Because we know what's coming. And meanwhile, we groan, we long for it, but we know we're destined for more than this. And it's an awesome feeling. You guys, I want to I show you a, a video. It's about two minutes long. And I want to show it to you, and then I'll explain why afterwards. Um, but it was just it's a clip from something I watched this week. Someone showed me a video. It was a, an hour-long documentary from CNN. Some of you probably saw it already. And it was showing some things that were going on in Afghanistan, just showing the, the way of life out there. Someone went undercover and just a, a lady from that area. And I just want to show you a two-minute clip from that, and then I'll explain why afterwards. So just watch this. They take us to see an old woman called Bibi John. When the Taliban came, she was at home with her two sons, both civilians. They shot him there. It was my little boy who I brought up. The other one they captured and took away. Uh, I was standing here. When the Taliban came, my son was standing over there. He couldn't speak their language, and they shot him. They shot him here in this place. We took his blood and covered it up. It was here we covered over the spot where he died. Then the villagers take us to another house, a place veiled in sorrow. The first person I see is an old man, staring into space. Then I see three girls of 9, 12 and 15 years old. Their father says they've been crying for weeks, ever since the Taliban came to their home. The Taliban told my mother to leave the house because they were going to make it their headquarters. My mother cried and pleaded with them. She said, you have taken my husband prisoner. Where should I take my children in this snow? And then they shot her. I had the shot. My younger sister was watching from the doorway. She said, they have shot my mother. I ran over and found that she was dead. I ask them how long the Taliban stayed in the house while their mother's body lay in the yard. The Taliban, after shooting my mother, they stayed here for two days. 
I ask what the men did to her and to her sisters in those two days. They won't say. You guys, I, uh, I watched that whole documentary for an hour, as some of you guys probably did. And uh, the reason why I show it is because, you know, after watching that, I, I kind of got sick of... It made me sick as I thought about the things that I complain about. You know, and how at times I can have these pity stories of, oh, poor me. Things I have to go through. Go. I don't have any problems. You know, I've got things pretty good. And not only that, not only do I have my comfortable life here in Simi Valley, but I have this future to look forward to. You know, I have this hope that I go, oh, man, and it's, it's going to be incredible one day. But as I watch the living conditions out there and, and these people growing up in this rubble and that's just all that they have, I, I began to think not just of their earthly existence, but I think what hope do they have after that? What about their future? Here I am living pretty good and also I've got this future that, that even if things were bad, I've got that to look forward to and that to hope for. But what hope do they have at all? Ever. And that's where we start putting on our Christian philosopher hat and go, gee, you know, how could a loving God allow that? Why doesn't God do something for them? And that's a great question. But you know what? At the end of your life, you are not going to sit on a throne and question God and say, God, why didn't you do something for them? No, he is going to sit on the throne and say to you, no, with your knowledge and your understanding of truth, how come you didn't do anything? And you guys, it, it just, it, it crushed me because I think, well, what do I do? I, do I even acknowledge what goes on in the world around me and people without any hope? And how, how much effort am I putting toward reaching them? And how much effort am I putting toward my own little problems that really aren't problems in light of what other people go through? Because it's so easy to be selfish and, and self-centered. And it, it, just, it just crushed me because I realized how selfish I've been in my life. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what it means for me or my future or, or whatever else. I just know that more needs to be done somehow. And that our mission statement of this church needs to go beyond our community and to the ends of the earth. And, and, and sure, we, we spend more money every year on reaching people all around the world, you know, on missions. It just grows, and that's where we're hoping more of the money can go to, is actual literal ministry like that everywhere. And that's why people on the staff choose to take lower salaries, is so that we can give more to that. But, you know, sometimes I just feel like it's not enough. And I, and I, and I, just, I share that this morning because I just wonder, what is God's plan for each of us in this room? Are you sure God's plan is for you just to stay here in Simi Valley and do what you're doing for the rest of your life? Or is God calling you to more? And are you someone that this church is going to send to go out and share this hope of heaven with those who have no hope? I was, um, I was visiting a, a friend of mine this week. I think it was on Tuesday. I was visiting a guy named Jeff. Jeff's about my age. Jeff's dying of cancer. He's lying on his couch. He's probably lost 50 to 70 pounds. Um, and he's got two little boys, both under the age of two. And uh, his boys are crawling around him, talking to his wife and everything. First thing I, I say to Jeff is, Jeff, how you doing? 
And the first thing out of his mouth is this. He goes, you know, there are a lot of people who have it a lot worse than I do. That statement just shocked me. It's like, what? There are a lot of people who have it much worse than I do. You guys, Jeff's only been a Christian for a few weeks. He's learned something that many Christians have not learned in a lifetime. We've got it pretty good. Despite whatever you're going through on this earth, you've got this hope of heaven and this bright future. And you've got to take joy in that. But there are many who don't. And you guys, that's where our burden needs to be is off of ourselves and onto them. You guys, in a moment, uh, Jim's going to sing a song that just describes everything that we spoke about, this new existence in heaven. And as he sings it, I, I want you to think. I, I don't want this to be this downer morning. I want you to be thinking, man, there's tremendous peace and tremendous hope in that as you picture yourself dwelling in heaven with God. But at the same time, while we have peace and joy with that, I want you to have that peace, have that joy, but also think about those who need to hear the truth and do what we can to reach out to them. And maybe even this morning, you don't have that hope. Maybe you're not sure that if you were to die today, that this would be your destiny, the bride. And maybe this morning, you'd like to make that choice to accept Jesus Christ, to finally take a stand. If you can't take a stand in front of people who would applaud you, how do you expect to take a stand in front of people who can't stand the name of Jesus Christ? You know, that first step God wants us to, is to get baptized. So we're having baptism next week. That's a time when people publicly confess, look, I believe in Jesus and I'm not ashamed. If you haven't taken that stand yet and you're ready to do that, or maybe you just need to pray or you have some questions, Pastor Doug's going to be up here by the prayer room. Just come up and pray with him or some of the other counselors. Um, let's pray as we take an offering. God, open my eyes and everyone else's eyes and just show us how good we have it. Help us to really see what that future existence is going to be as we hear about it in song. Just help us to imagine how good it's going to be. But also, Lord, uh, open our eyes to the mission that you've called us to while we're still on this earth, doing everything we can to give other people the same hope and use this money for that very purpose. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.